0: listeners to the first installment of Open Swim. To kick off our 2019 year, you're here with Hallie Bram Kogelschatz,
1: Eric Kogelschatz, Brian Andrew Draczynski,
0: and Allie Healy. So today we're coming off of a holiday season, and really it's a mixed bag. We really don't know what happened during holiday 2018 because, surprise, the government shutdown has unfortunately put us in a situation where economic reporting is being put on the back burner and as a side note obviously we're really hoping that the shutdown is concluded by the time we air this episode we know it's really affecting a lot of people that both we know and a lot of people across the country and we're thinking of them as they face possibility of another paycheck not being cashed during the furlough so thinking of everyone out there if you're somehow impacted by that hoping this gets resolved quickly so that everyone can get back to work. So Eric, I know that you've been uh, trying to piece together a story based on the data we do have Um, and you know one of the things that we're trying to figure out is in light of the conversation over the last decade or more around the future of retail, this retail apocalypse that everyone seems to be suggesting is coming or is here, you know what do the numbers actually tell us? We know about Some major retailers that have declared bankruptcy in the last year, such as Toys R Us, Sears, Mattress Firm, Claire's, Brookstone, Nine West, the list goes on. But there are others that are really reinventing the game and seem to be reporting nice earnings towards the end of 2018 and definitely growing. Aside from the headlines, what does the general data that we have at this moment suggest?
2: Yeah, this is such a timely conversation because the National Retail Federation just had their 2019 big show, January 13th through the 15th. One of the conversations there is obviously the economic impact. So there are 3.7 million establishments across the country supporting 29 million jobs. Wow.
0: There are a lot of people working in retail like you don't think about it all the time. How many people actually make a career in retail? There are a lot of people out there that this is a full time long term career.
2: Absolutely. And and if you think about it, the number we always focus on is sales, but that obviously translates to labor income. So that's eight hundred twenty two billion dollars supporting Americans and their families. So it's a very important industry in our country.
0: Absolutely. And I think the other thing to keep in mind there is that, you know, I think when people think of retail, they often think of the sales associate. There are so many other people that touch retail. Um, so when you talk about labor, you know, that's everyone from the shipping department to the back office, to management, to people that are working in marketing. You know, it does touch every facet. And these are major organizations beyond, you know, your friendly neighborhood shopkeeper.
3: So obviously, this affects a lot of people. So what does the sales data actually tell us about the future?
2: 2018 was a great year. It's $5.3 trillion in sales. One thing that's clear is that brick and mortar still remains about 90% of sales. So e-commerce is steady there at uh, 10%. So the exact dollars are brick and mortar $4.8 trillion and e-commerce $525 billion. And obviously those numbers aren't set yet because we haven't received all the data from the U.S. Department of Commerce. However, we are projecting an increase year over year for 2019. So from $5.3 trillion in 2018 to $5.5 trillion in 2019. The mix between brick and mortar and e-commerce really only goes down one point um, from 2018 to 2019. So instead of 4.8 trillion sales for brick and mortar, it goes up to 4.9 trillion sales for brick and mortars.
0: So while year over year projections are only going down by one point for brick and mortar retail in 2019, it is a decrease. And I think there are some economists out there that may suggest that that means that the death of retail is coming um, and may continue to beat that drum. But what I'm interested to learn more about is if we feel that this is a retailer specific issue or if this is more of a macro problem. Brian what do you think? When I
1: hear that data and, and hear how s- there are certain retailers that seem to be growing and I was actually very surprised and pleasantly surprised by the fact that that decrease in brick and mortars wasn't as great as was predicted even just a few years yeah. ago. Um I do think what's very important for brands, even when they're popular, established brands, is not being afraid to be nimble and to rely on the core of their brand, but not be afraid to evolve their brand and the way that they present their brand and their product. It's all about, and we've talked about this before, the customer experience and the fact that people are still going into brick and mortar stores. But what is setting that particular retailer apart and what can they offer beyond just the idea of going in and shopping to to make purchases a great example on you know a very accessible end of the scale is target everybody knows target you know you go on there go in there any weekend and you're going to find that it's busy but they have not been afraid to experiment with their formula experiment with the presentation of the stores themselves as a matter of fact the past few years they've done a major redesign of the experience within within the stores while target has a very successful online presence they realize and recognize the importance of that in-store experience throughout 2018 and continuing into this new year of 2019 they have a goal of redesigning their stores with the goal of taking this customized approach to that enhanced shopping experience so you I'm sure you begin to you've begun to recognize uh, the grocery option of the stores themselves. They look more like a market. They've changed the flooring. They've changed the lighting. They've changed the way food is presented in the cabinets. It almost feels more like a local grocery. Um, There's also the option where they've added a second door where as a shopper you we've all heard the idea of the way grocery stores are designed and that those vital things that you need such as milk and bread are always at the back to be so that you're tempted by all the other uh items that you know you find on your journey along to the back of the store well they're taking the bold approach of no we're going to let people be able to access the grocery if that is what they're there for as well as their curbside pickup um the way as i said earlier the way that they're presenting the merchandise it's almost becoming a retro approach as it's beginning to look even more like a department store so this idea where they're doing cross merchandise product presentation you see how it's put together where and in my opinion as a designer i think a lot of times when you see something online in a very singular form you may not be as interested in buying it but when you see it put together in a pres- in an environment, you see how the different clothes can be put together. It's going to inspire you and, more, most importantly, influence you to make that purchase.
2: It's really interesting to see these retailers invest in their overall experience. There was an announcement in late 2018 that Tiffany was going to redo their flagship store in New York.
0: Yeah, just in general, Tiffany's going to be one to watch in 2019. They've been doing a lot of experimentation with their marketing in the last year plus around who is the Tiffany shopper and trying to, with their advertising, communicate a really different type of Tiffany shopper. You know, you see a lot more younger models in ads. You see tattoos. You see some things that are a bit edgier. You know, they're being much less precious with their brand. And that's a really divergent path for Tiffany. So I think it's going to be something to watch as far as how does that bet pay off. Brian, much like what you're talking about with Target, you know, they're making some big bets as well because there is tried and true ways of, setting up a store, as you mentioned. So is it going to pay off? I'm sure there are a lot of grocery stores watching this to see if by giving the customer an easier path to the things that they know that they want, are they still seeing the types of sales that one sees in a traditional grocery setting? Or are they going to have some sort of trade-off because of that side door access, for example? It,
1: absolutely. As I said, it's it's such a risk because, I mean, we all know the, the joke about Target, right? I went in for a roll of paper towels and I left with a whole new decor for my living room you know it's the things you don't necessarily need but they give they've always been able you know they've been on the cutting edge of introducing high-end design to the masses that's what Target has been genius and prolific at for the past 20 plus years since they've really become not only a huge part of culture but really a staple brand that people regularly shop at be it for home or retail apparel or now grocery.
0: I think they've really been able to make that cross-sell work in the in-store experience. I will say, as a shopper, from a user experience standpoint, I loathe what Whole Foods is doing. Mm. I hate going into Whole Foods and seeing that, that giant toy section right in the middle. It makes me, as a parent, not want to walk that store because I'm so afraid as I go past that aisle that our children are going to see all those toys and I'm going to end up spending some ungodly sum of money on a toy that they don't need and so I think that there's a right and a wrong way to do cross sell and I think that Target as you mentioned has been ingenious at getting it right and making the in-store experience something that is tempting but not unavoidable as far as those product categories that um May have you fall into a bit of a trap as a parent per se, mm-hmm. um, or just as any shopper. Whereas I think Whole Foods is doing it in a way that's very intrusive and it doesn't think, feel as
1: natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I think it's to go back what you were saying about Tiffany, I liked how you stated it's not as precious. Um, it's it's almost a, a mere reflection of what Target's doing. So where Target is a very accessible big box store at the end of the day that is what they are they are a big box store but they have introduced the idea of style and the attainable to the masses whereas Tiffany yeah said that's always been that idea of you know you need to be dressed up to go in the store you know if you're not there to buy something you don't feel comfortable just going in there to browse so, you know it's obviously an experience a lot of people want to experience So it. it's a pop culture icon um, so people are naturally curious about Tiffany, but there has always been this sense of these gilded gates that you know not everybody can pass. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they are willing to introduce within their advertising something that almost feels a little bit more counterculture is fascinating. And I
0: would say that plays well into another trend that I'm seeing come up quite a bit. That is the extension of what we've known over the decades, but has had a particular spotlight placed on it in the digital age, which is personalization. As I was looking through all of these different kind of trend reports, you know, we're in the beginning of the year, so trends are are something that everybody's talking about. I thought that Shopify, which is known for online retail, was actually spot on when it came to their trend report. And the first thing that they mentioned is retail as a service. And that to me is something that I think a lot about as a customer and, you know, coming from a retail background. In particular, luxury brands have done a really good job of, um, but you're seeing it more with other places, you know, like the Targets of the world. One of the, um, you know, examples that they give as far as what this means is they take a look at what Nordstrom is doing. And Nordstrom has this whole offering now that's called Nordstrom Local. And honestly, when you take a look at what they do by and large, it's a lot of things that they had been offering before. um, But the way that they're packaging it is very different so some of the services that they're that they're listing here are things like buy online pick up in store so obviously a page right out of the target book um, on-site alterations nothing new but then you go down the list and there are other things that you can do such as reserve online and try and store or you know things such as renting a tux or when you're on site pairing your stylist appointment with services such as a manicure or a polish change and this kind of all-in-one-and-done message and making it really attractive in this this age of, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I don't have time to to get all these things done on my to-do list. Well, Nordstrom is through their Nordstrom local program centralizing this and trying to communicate we're there to make your life easier. So the service-based approach and taking it not just to the level of personalization as far as a check the box. I mean, anyone can send out an email that has your name listed in it at this point, right? You know, they're trying to make it really personal to align with your lifestyle and the types of things that people are just having a hard time fitting into their day. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that type of retail as service and trying to like communicate ease and a streamlining of your lifestyle through the services that they offer and just dialing up either things that already existed or bringing In services that may not have been a part of their model before just to keep you in the store longer.
2: Let's apply this lens for a second. So, we've talked about the idea of cross promotion, introducing different product categories in these retail environments, the idea that we're targeting everyone, it's a one stop shop. Think about it through the lens of the digital native retailers, you know, who were born in this environment, like away luggage, and then compare it to those that are legacy companies and what they're doing. My hypothesis is that the legacy companies are targeting everyone. They're doubling down on their retail experience because that's what they were born into. And then they're trying to invest in these e-commerce channels so that they can grow there as well. So they're just putting money in all these different areas. And I wonder, is there always strategy there, uh, which is a whole other topic, but then the idea of these digital native companies are now trying to apply the retail experience physically, you know, so they're moving away from just being online and but they've always been targeting customers in niche ways So that
0: i think into that category would fall things like guide stores you know we've talked about companies like bonobos before um, and what they do with guide stores um, there are lots of other brands who have tested out this model um with mixed results but I think you know that's because it's still somewhat early and people are still trying to figure out like hey do I really like this idea of going into a physical environment trying something on but not being able to take it home with me I think that's like still a hurdle that people are getting over but I sort of wonder if it's going to be the same sort of behavioral shift as w- with what happened with streaming music you know it might be something that today people are really just not all about but in the future it may be just the way things are because having major stockpiles of inventory is just something that's very difficult to sustain for many retailers, especially as, you know, you look at urban environments where store space is at a premium, you know, they may not be able to also afford warehousing space. And so centralizing it is just the way that it has to go. So something to watch for sure.
1: Now on the other end of the spectrum, where as I was noting earlier, somewhere like Target that is enhancing their shopping experience through a redesign and a re a, a new approach to the way that the store design is working for their customers. There's an even more extreme version of this approach, which is being termed culture coders. Um, really interesting article that I came across uh, on Frame Web by Stephanie Dorfer talks about this idea of culture coders and how creating a cultural experience beyond retail is an approach that many legacy Retailers are embracing and and seeing the importance in the investment. Um, for example, from basketball courts to performance, creating performance halls, um, they they challenge this traditional concept of what is the shopping experience, what is the functionality of the space, and the idea of people are there for an event, but the ultimate goal is obviously promotion of the product and purchase of the product. I think a very Fascinating approach to this experiential design it has been created by Doc Martens. So everybody knows Doc Martens as this countercultural, iconic brand. And along with the uh, retail design agency called Close Sundays, they've created this permanent stage and music space that people can come to see bands perform it has that edge of being at you know some gritty club on a on a Saturday evening um, in in London but at the same time they've activated their brand by with the ability to personalize design your how you want your Doc Martens to work for you and how you know be it your style how you're going to wear them where you're going to wear them so this is a great example of You're not just going shopping for a pair of boots, you're going to see a concert, you're going to engage with other people, but at the end of the day, you're going there to purchase these boots. I've noticed more and more at exhibitions at art museums or history museums, any special exhibition that you go to, sure as rain, you will leave that exhibition, you have to go through a space where it's retail and product all based on that exhibit you just saw, and I think it's a genius move because you are so inspired by what you just saw, you're so engrossed and ingrained by the art or the artist that you have just been you know, experiencing for the past forty-five minutes to an hour, and they, in a sense, they're feeding on the those uh, endorphins that you that you have because you've been in this experience and you want to take some part of that home so i think that's a another example you know not necessarily a traditional retailer but they're definitely using that experiential dna to create income
2: i like the idea of the culture coders especially better than retailtainment. that whole trend is so odd to me another example that i heard of was rei and how they're organizing these weekend camping trips and adventures and obviously the product is integrated into it but it just presents the brand in a very different way and what i like about it's showing the inherent drama of the product and how it can be utilized
0: absolutely and allowing you to see that like literally on site you know and try before you buy a little bit yeah
1: yeah absolutely
0: really interesting
1: another thing that the this uh, cultural coding movement is creating is culture it's creating community so uh nike is another great example they've created a 370 square mile basketball court capable of seating Four hundred spectators, and this is within its New York office space, um, their headquarters. Uh, th- the idea is this court has is available for free use, uh, for obviously for Nike employees, but also for brand ambassadors. And what I love about it is for local leagues, in particular, high school teams. Like, how amazing is that for a high school team to be in this professional court and they're playing in front of spectators? Um,
0: I can't imagine like a more perfect place to exhibit like you say the inherent drama of a product on a press tour or something like that inviting everyone in for an event around the basketball court um, in New York sounds pretty impressive. Absolutely.
2: They've done this before but typically it's been for a special event and then they gifted it to an organization after the fact. This sounds like it was very unique.
1: Exactly and then uh, you know another example is the Brazilian footwear label Melissa. They're known for these very sculptural uh, plastic shoes. They've actually tapped into the idea that They've got this connection of fashion meets art. And so their showroom has become part boutique and part art gallery, exhibition space. So both of these examples feed into what I just mentioned, the idea of community. So not only are you now going, you're not just, as I said before, going to buy a pair of shoes or, or buy... A scarf just because that's on your list to do you're now going to engage not only in the space but with others that have the similar interests so there's almost this exclusivity you know we are alike we're here together it's creating this connection that you may have with somebody you you don't know but you almost feel like you're part of this special culture and I think that's what from the extreme of target to the extreme of these high-end experiences that's what they're doing they're going beyond the thing that is being put in your shopping bag and you're taking home with you it's this experience and it's this feeling and and it feeds into what we've heard over and over of millennials the importance of the experience
0: and authenticity
1: and authenticity one thing I wanted to go back to as well is these larger retailers, I personally feel they are keeping such a close eye. In a good way, there has been a resurgence over the past few years in the small business. And I definitely think a lot of this design that you're seeing in their stores and these experiences are them recreating that small business authenticity on their large scale to the extreme where they're actually, you know, you, some of these larger retailers are sourcing local designers retailers and putting their product in their bigger box store so it's their way of injecting local authenticity into what could be seen as a very steely cold, big box experience.
0: And not to insert any bias here, but one thing that we found over the last few years is that there are a lot of big name clients that, you know, you would typically associate with using one of the kind of uh, publicly held agencies, for example, in our world that are looking to firms like ours because we're able to be more nimble and execute some of these creative solutions on their behalf. So I think with even some of the executions that you've mentioned, Brian, it's not the usual players that are helping these brands bring these visions to life you're seeing a lot more diversification in, in our world as far as firms that are able to think creatively and apply that thinking to big brands. I know that I have a bias, but I think that that is a lot of the times where some of that interesting thinking comes from. It's not that it's impossible out of a big agency, but when you work with a boutique firm, they're able to be a lot more nimble on clients' behalf. So Brian, obviously, those examples suggest that people really want to engage with one another and be a part of a community that retail has a voice in and can support through experiences. Allie, what are your thoughts, you know, as far as this idea that retail is dead?
3: One thing that we've all sort of been talking about is that brands are evolving and one industry that has evolved their experience is the grocery stores and they're evolving to include a lot of technology and a lot of digitalization. And they're sort of integrating this online, offline, omni channel experience to on the other end of creating an experience for a customer. Whereas what you were talking about was sort of creating this new experience where they spend a lot of time with the product. Grocery stores are trying to sort of get you in and out. So it's like sort of the two ends of, the, of, of a coin. Also
1: to the extreme of not even having you come in. Yeah. There is so much now. It's about delivery and curbside service. For uh, sure.
3: So one technology that Kroger and Microsoft are teaming up to integrate in Kroger stores is called Edge Shelving, which is Enhanced Display for Grocery Environment. So Edge Shelving is a technical shelf that holds your products and it also displays pricing, labels. You can advertise on it. It's really an all-in-one sort of thing. There's real-time connectivity, so it's Bluetooth, Wi-Fi. You can update pricing, sales, specials in real-time, which gives you know the customer, obviously, information at the tip of their fingers. Another thing is advertisers can promote their product so if you're like in the cereal aisle for instance you can advertise milk so it can guide a shopper through the store in a different way
2: kroger is just killing it Mm -hmm. they are just doing some amazing things and i think that edge example is the perfect scenario for them i mean they're they're going head on with amazon and amazon go stores but they've also been doing so many other things i don't know if you guys heard about the ugly produce program they have called zero hunger zero waste They're doing that um, to, you know, make sure we're being more thoughtful about the produce that we're not using. You mentioned the uh, delivery. They're working with a startup out of UK called Okada, uh, Instacart that's here in the United States. They're working with Alibaba to sell products over in China. So they're just doing all these different things. They're working with autonomous vehicles in Arizona. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And this is a company that...
1: They originated in Ohio, correct? Or the mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and it's,
2: they're 136 years old. So mm-hmm. talk about digital transformation. This is the perfect scenario where a brand is able to transform and be a legacy company, but act like a digital native and
0: actually you know it's a really important thing for legacy businesses to take note of because digital transformation is really intimidating to people that are in legacy sectors like grocery or even manufacturing automotive things like this that have been around for eons and eons and you know if you haven't you know they think if you haven't been chipping away at the iceberg over time it's impossible to get into well You know, if you take a look at Kroger, yeah, they're really, you know, hot and heavy and getting into some of these different, you know, practical applications now. But I guarantee if you were to look in their history, the majority of their brand's timeline was probably spent in a very traditional grocery setting. You know, this is really a way of thinking that they were forced into and kudos to them for really kind of picking up the mantle and, and pushing this forward aggressively. And it'll definitely be another one to watch.
3: What you said about they were forced into it. I know a lot of stores and retail grocery or not are intimidated by Amazon for sure. And Eric, you had mentioned that they're breaking into the brick and mortar. And I think that speaks volumes and how um, how important it is to go to a physical store still. So I think that Uh, it's, it's important to also have, and Amazon is demonstrating this with their like go stores and their lockers and Whole Foods. It's important to have a physical place to go to, even if you're digitizing your shopping experience.
0: One of the key takeaways from this is that at least in my perspective, the store isn't going away. Retail isn't going away. There are still really important applications for the person-to-person interaction or the experience or community, whatever you want to call it, experience that happens in store. But what it does mean is that there are new expectations on the behalf of the customer because customers have changed the way that they want to shop, what they're willing to 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 wait for what they're willing to buy in store versus online. You know, I saw an interesting stat that that talked about customers' expectations for shipping have drastically gone down because of Amazon forcing the conversation about two-day shipping um, and even you know free shipping and things like that. And so it used to be over five days that people were willing to wait. It's now gone down to four days that people are willing to wait. And what that suggests to me is that at a certain point there is gonna be this cost benefit analysis on the part of consumers, am I really willing to wait or, you know what, I can just get in my car and go around the corner and go to the store. Yeah. So I I do think that we're going to see the pendulum swing back around on brick and mortar in a different way. I think like every sector, there are certain services that are offered that are novelty at the beginning and everyone gets really excited about, but then things tend to level out. The retailers that are going to win are the ones that can really figure out How to give you what you want in the online environment, but make the brick and mortar experience so enticing and give you some emotional or um, intangible benefit that online will never be able to service. So, you know, much like the Nikes of the world or the Nordstrom locals, there are certain things like a manicure that you just can't get online. So, Eric, (laughs) you're the last one on my list. (laughs) Is retail alive and well or dead and done?
2: The retail apocalypse is real and I think something new is emerging. So, we've already talked about the companies going bankrupt. Toys R Us, Sears, Mattress Firm, you name it. And a lot of retail shops are closing. Macy's been closing locations um, you're also seeing stock prices of j crew and ralph lauren going down so let's take a step back if you look at the history of retail it started with open markets then the shops and the stores department stores one of the biggest ones was sears and they introduced a catalog which revolutionized the industry and if you it really that's the first form of e-commerce where people could get things delivered to their home they're dead um, then malls were created so you had multiple boutique Um, retailers in one location. They're dead. Um, And then people tried to call it, they tried to evolve the industry and say that it was a multi-channel approach where you had e-commerce and brick and mortar side by side. Then they wanted to call it omni-channel where everything works together but they're still separate. My thought on this is that the idea of brick and mortar versus e-commerce or omni-channel that concept is dead. we really need to think about this idea of retail modality where everything works in harmony and the user cannot tell the difference between these experiences because before digital was that tool that you held in your hand now when people are going to shops like an amazon go store they can just walk out and they don't have to touch a device so i do believe that this idea of retail modality will be the future and That's how people will know retail moving forward.
0: So I think what that tells me is that we're a split jury here, (laughs) but that we're going to stay tuned as far as what happens. Hopefully you found this conversation to be interesting. We'd love to hear your thoughts as well. You can always email us at openswim at sharkandminnow.com if you've got additional thoughts. And let us know what shopping experiences you're enjoying, liking, wish would go away as well.
2: My bigger boat, this episode goes out to Rodney McMullen, the CEO of Kroger, who has been able to transform a 136-year-old company through a lot of the technologies that we've already mentioned and also just rethinking the whole retail experience. Uh, One thing that I also love about this guy is that he actually began his career as a part-time stock clerk in his local Kroger. And I just think it's amazing he was able to then go to school and then come back to the company that he started his working career at and just build it to the second largest retailer in the United States.
0: So my bigger boat goes out to my new friend crush and awesome inventor of TerraCycle and now Loop, Tom Zaki. So if you're not familiar with TerraCycle, um, it's something that you often see on packages um, that, you know, you're not quite sure, is this something that's recyclable or not? He's developed a really innovative model for waste management and it has to do with, um, recycling things that are not typically able to be recycled in a traditional recycling setting. And now he is taking a page out of sort of the antique retail playbook and bringing back reusable packaging, much like people used to have with services like milk. You had the milkman that came to your door, delivered um, milk, or as my mother has told me as of today, also cottage cheese. Um, And what he's trying to do is apply that kind of thinking to a number of brands. He's done a masterful job of bringing together some of the top business-based polluters. um, And you can find them, you know, they're listed out there, um, unfortunately. And they've been really keen on coming together and trying to innovate on this issue. So now Loop is going to be offering reusable packaging for things like ice cream. So Haagen-Dazs, Nestle brands is involved. Or a number of Procter & Gamble products like deodorant. And what they're going to be doing is applying packaging that can last a minimum of 100 uses and um, in some cases is available in store or possibly shipped to you. This is a pilot program right now, but based on how this performs, it is a, a program that Zachy is looking to extrapolate out as far and wide as he possibly can. So I love this kind of thinking. I think it really helps to solve some of the issues that we have around plastics in our oceans, obviously, um, you know, fighting this idea of a disposable culture. And I am really excited to see the results of the pilot program. So congratulations for this type of innovative thinking. And we'll be staying tuned.
3: This episode, my bigger boat goes to one of the best ice cream brands ever, Ben and Jerry's. They have been advocating for a A number of socially responsible causes and different organizations since almost since they were founded starting with the organization 1% for Peace in 1988 and Up to now, they advocate for climate change and gender equality.
1: Throughout our conversation today, we talked about retail experiences, uniting individuals and creating that community. And as we began our show, we talked about the government shutdown. So what I would like to dedicate my bigger boat this episode to are the many retailers that are extending charitable donations and donating revenue from their sales to Organizations that are and individuals that are affected by the shutdown and allowing them to either stay open and continue to be enjoyed by people, as well as providing funding to allow those organizations to continue to function and exist. For example, uh, the National Parks Foundation has received many donations from retailers such as REI, Burt's Bees, North Face, and Columbia Sportswear. Uh, all standing united for nature, as Burt's Bees spoke. Um, to in their in their promotional ad regarding their donation, so I, I do like the idea that you know retail, you know, everybody thinks about it as commerce and making money, but th- this is a great example of it taking a stand and caring for the for the people that they serve.
0: This episode is in support of CLE Clothing Co., an apparel company that encourages Cleveland Pride, one t-shirt at a time. While their apparel might be the most visible aspect of CLE Clothing Co., we are so impressed with the way in which they work philanthropically with the Cleveland nonprofit community, whether by creating design merchandise to raise funds for a great cause or event sponsorships. Over the past two years, the company has donated over 4,000 sweatshirts, winter caps, and pairs of socks via organizations that help those in need. At the time of recording, they are preparing to continue this tradition as they package a new shipment of apparel to be sent out, which is especially important as we find ourselves in the midst of a very cold January on the North Coast. We salute their warm hearts and generous spirits. Learn more at cleclothingco.com. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow, on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Tacone, Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.